are in this series right now. We're going through the uh, three epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the three letters that uh, he wrote. And it's, just, it's been going really, really, really well. I've been really, really excited about this series. Uh, I just want to say this. Pastor Austin and I, we didn't talk this morning at all about, I mean, we've talked, but not about the service, about what it's teaching on. And I just feel like, again, leaving room for the Holy Spirit, I feel like is really setting our church up in a, in a really amazing way. The Holy Spirit is moving. And what, what Austin came up here and said is literally exactly what we're talking about today. And again, he didn't, he didn't know that. We didn't talk for even a second. He probably, if he would have read that passage, he might not have even got that out of it. I don't know. It took me a while to get where I got on this. And so I was just, I literally was almost, I was almost in tears. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, a, he's, he's leading us. The Holy Spirit is leading us into where we're trying to go today. So I'm just so excited. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Pastor Austin, for listening to the Spirit and doing that. I'm very, very excited about today's message. It's going to be a bit different, but I think I say that a lot, so it's probably not going to be any different. But, but we're, we're going to go with this. So uh, let's open up our Bibles together to 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 through 14. All right. This is John writing to somebody, writing to a church somewhere, somebody. He says this. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment. That makes sense. I'm writing to you, which is true in him, and it's true in you. This is not only true in Jesus, but this is true in you. This commandment is true for you in the way you are living. You're already living this. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John shifts it. And after saying all that, he's like very much like, if you, if you hate your brother, then you're not of God and you're in darkness. But then he just says this. He says, hey, by the way, none of you, you're not in darkness. He says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, we just thank you so much. Uh, just that you're here today, Father God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're already moving in this place, Father God, that you're already working on people's hearts and preparing them for the word uh, which will be spoken today, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we get to be co-laborers with you, that we get to be partners with you in the mission in this great city, Father God. And Holy Spirit, right now, I just ask that you would speak through me today, Lord, that everything that you would have me to say, I would say, but let everything else just fall to the ground, God, before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, one thing that we, we said last week that we kind of need to keep at the forefront of our minds, and we're going to keep it at the forefront uh, of today's message as well, uh, is this reality. To the outside world looking in on us, and on the church, and on, in looking in on what we're doing, and trying to figure out what we're all about, and what that actually 
does to our lives and does this gospel, what does this gospel do to our lives? To the outside world, it can be very, very easy if we're not careful for, that, for the truth that we have to actually look like a lie. And we said that last week, we talked about that last week, and what we mean by that is this, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most true thing, it's the truest thing that exists in the world. It is total truth. We know that there are concrete truths that exist out there, and this is one of them. We know that it's real. But and we, we can pretend, like we talked about last week, how a lot of people like to say there's no truth, and we can go with that. We can pretend like there's no truth, but it's just simply not the truth. It's not true. But any time you have a truth, and you have something like that in your life, but it doesn't actually transform who you are, it doesn't actually take a hold of your life and make you into a better person than the person you were before you had it, it just looks like it's a lie. And, and, and John, he continues that thought, which we started last week, he continues it through the first half of what we read today, from 7 through 11. But then in verse 12, obviously as you read, he shifts it, he kind of flips it on us. And he sort of breaks into this, it's kind of like a poetry sec- section, it's this very poetic part, uh, saying some really profound and amazing things. But the same truth applies to it. And uh, he says a few really amazing words that I just want to highlight for you briefly. Uh, first he says, little children, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven is the Greek word apheome. And what it means is to send away. Okay? So what it's saying is that in Jesus, your sins are not here anymore. They're gone. They're not here anymore. Then he says this. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you're strong. Strong uh, is the Greek word eschukros. And what it means is of one who has the strength of soul to sustain the attacks of Satan. So what John says is he says that the evil that is in this world, the evil that is attacking you even in these moments and in your lives and in your homes, it's not more powerful than what is inside of you right now. It's not more powerful than you are. And then, of course, last week we uh, learned that Jesus is our advocate, our parakletos, which uh, has two meanings. One means to, to, is you're called to one side, and then the, the courtroom meaning of it is it's one who pleads another's cause before a judge. So all of these words are words that just have amazing, huge, profound implications. They're not the kind of things that we should just take lightly, right? They're very powerful words. They're realities that really should change everything about the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat one another and the way that we view one another and the way that we view ourselves. Still, we can learn powerful words and that's a lot of fun and that's really cool, but what good is it to know something that you never actually experience? What good is it to study the Greek, to study the Hebrew, and get into the depths of how powerful this is and not letting that power actually take shape of your life? We can fight about theology or argue about theology or talk about theology till we're blue in the face. But if it never actually grabs a hold of us and transforms us into the people we're supposed to be, truth looks like a lie. It looks like fancy words that don't actually mean anything. That's why I believe that John puts so much of an emphasis on this. He's saying, this gospel is so powerful, it should be changing who you are. It should be changing the tone in your home. It should be changing the way you interact with people on the streets. It should be changing the way that you are when you're in the marketplace and you're at work and you're loving the community. In the verses that we read last week, one thing that John talked about was he was talking about keeping the commands of Jesus. And here he says something a bit bizarre about the commands. Uh, he, he basically says, he says, it's, it's, it's not a new command. I'm giving you no new command. He's like, it's actually an old command. 
But then he's like, actually, it's also a new command. And I read that, and I'm just like, that's really, really clear. Like, this is really, this is, you're very clear about this, John. No new command, an old command. It's a new command, right? It, this is what I think that John is saying. In, in John's gospel, in John 13, um, 34 and 35, Jesus says these words. Jesus says a new command. This is that same words. I'm giving you a new command. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. So I am the example of love. This, we get this throughout John. Jesus is your example. Jesus says it himself. I'm your example of love. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. Okay? In Matthew 22, uh, a lawyer tries uh, to test Jesus, and so he comes up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what is the most, uh, what's the most important commandment? What commandment matters the most? And, and what Jesus does in that moment is he actually summarizes or he condenses all 613 laws into just two simple things. He says, oh, that's easy. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But the reason that's no new commandment, even though he gives us this, the greatest commandment, he kind of frames it in a new way, right? He says something um, that, that feels new to people, but it's actually not a new commandment. It's actually, even when he gives it, he's quoting the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, 6 5 is where it starts. And it's, it's, it's a very famous Jewish passage that uh, Jewish people wake up every morning practicing ones, and they say this every single morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's exactly what Jesus says to the lawyer. So it's, it's, it's kind of like this, and, and I'm hoping this doesn't confuse you because I know it's a little confusing. But there are things in life that we just know, right? We know them to be true. We know, we know they've always been there, right? We've always known them. But we don't always fully embrace it. We don't always fully accept it in our lives. Like, for instance... We read that Jesus is our advocate, right? We know that Jesus is the one pleading our case for us and that when we sin, we shouldn't sin, but when we do, because sometimes we're going to, we have an advocate. We have somebody who's going to stand by our side, who's going to plead our case. But even so, it's still very, very difficult when we do sin to not kind of beat ourselves up and live in that and kind of slump into these depressed, depressed moments of like, oh, woe is me, I'm a loser, I'm this, I'm that, I should not have, you know, and there needs to be repentance, I absolutely think that. But what happens is we spend all this time depressed about things that we've done wrong when Jesus says, I took care of that. So what's happening? What's happening is we're not living in the grace that was given to us. We're subtly trying to punish ourselves, and we're subtly trying to give ourselves what we think that we deserve, and we do deserve it, but Jesus already paid for it. But the reality is that the gospel has always been true. We just aren't always letting it unfold and take life and take shape in our lives. That makes sense. Well, it's the same thing with the commandments. The commandments have always been there. From the beginning, we had laws. We have tons and tons and tons of laws. But underneath those laws was always this concept of a God who loves Israel so much that he's going to keep pursuing them even when they break the laws. He's going to keep proposing to them, keep going after them, keep being, trying to redeem them. It, but at the same time, he's also a God who knows what's best for their communities, what's best for their health, what's best for their interactions, and how to have good marriages, and how to have good relationships. So he gives us these laws for our benefit. 
and with the hope that people will follow them and actually live healthy, good, wholesome lives. But what happens is we overcomplicate things, just like a lot of times they'd overcome, like they kind of overcomplicate the law. It's like, well, you keep the law, you're close to God. If you don't keep the law, then you're far from God. That's the way that it's viewed, which is why it's so important that we have Jesus who comes in and says, hey, you know what? First of all, I'm going to die because you're not going to be able to keep the law, and I'll, so I'll die in your place. But then he, he, when he's asked which of these 613 laws are the most important, he summarizes them all in this one phrase, love God and love your neighbor. In other words, keep your heart set on love. And that may feel new, but it's been there all along. You just, sometimes you need to hear things packaged in a different way. Um, probably a lot of you have had this frustration, I've had it many times, where you're in, like, you work for a company or you work for somebody, and you're always giving this idea, and, like, you know what the problem, you know the answer to the problem, so you keep trying to solve it, and you keep telling them, this is what we need to do, and, and they just sort of, it feels like they're ignoring you because they're so used to you, right? But then, then they bring in a specialist who comes in, and he says the exact same thing that you've been saying, and then it's like, oh my gosh, this is divine revelation from heaven, right? And that, that frustrates us, but sometimes we just need to hear things packaged a little bit differently, and that, that is what I think is going on there. And now, there's no doubt at all, guys, John is all about love. He starts this passage in verse 7 by saying this. He says, beloved, I'm writing you, people who I absolutely cherish, people whom I love with all of my heart, I'm writing you. Uh, one commentary um, records this moment in church history with the, uh, with the apostle John, and, w- and what happens is he's very old, and he's frail, and he's and, and, and he's living in Ephesus, and, and they want him to come speak, and he, I, I think this happened a few times. So what they do is they have, bring him out to speak, and he has to have people literally carry him in because he's so old by this time. And so they carry him in. They put him on the stage, or they put him wherever it is in front of everybody, and, he, and then he preaches a sermon, and this is his entire sermon. He just says these words. He says, little children, love one another. And then apparently this happens several times. Every, and every time they invite him to be the guest speaker, they, they, they wheel him in or they bring him in. And he just says the same thing every time. Little children love one another. And eventually somebody gets kind of irritated by coming out every time. You know, they, 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 they leave their house. They come. They're expecting to hear a new, fresh word. And it's the same word every single time. And so they say, John, why do you keep saying that to us? Why do you keep saying that? In other words, John, don't you have any other messages? And this is what, the way that he responds. He says, well, I, I say that because that's the Lord's commandment. And if you do that, it will be sufficient. I think it's so significant, even, you know, when we read, when, when Jesus says, he says, well, this is the new commandment. Love one another. See, we're very, we, we all understand, and Jesus understood, and John understood, that we need to be out loving our community. We have to, we can't just, this is, this is not, church is so much bigger than just this. We have to be out loving them. But John, John and Jesus, they're both, the way that they both frame these, a lot of these talks about love, actually says, well, they're going to see, and the best way to love the community is to first love each other and show them how strong that love can actually be when you work together and you're a body of people loving each other. By the way that we take care of each other and the way that we pick up each other's burdens, by the way that we are, like we talked about last week, called to each other's sides. So look at what John says in verse 9 and 10. And I know we're kind of, this is going to be a little bit of this today, but look at verse 9 and 10. John says, whoever says that he is in the light 
but he hates his brother. He hates the people he's in community with. He's still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I I, I was thinking about this, and I was praying about this, and trying to put my finger on the best way to talk, to kind of walk us through this. But you, you, you all know this. You cannot say that you love God and then hate another person. You can't be in community with people while at the same time holding things against them. But I I really believe wholeheartedly that this is probably the biggest stumbling block in the church in general that exists today. I've seen it my whole life. We convince ourselves that we live in the light and that we're following Jesus, but we all harbor something against somebody else. Unforgiveness, guys, it is the most deceiving, destructive thing that we could possibly ever carry. And it starts subtly. Like it starts with the person um, um, maybe even doing something that they don't even realize they've done to you. But in, in, in you might not even realize that it's bothering you. But before long, it starts to eat away at you. And it starts to frustrate you. And before long, it starts to destroy communities. And it's the opposite of what Jesus is saying about how this is how the community will see, how the world will see it is how you love your community. And I'm going to kind of show you how that is, how that works in a second. But there's no reason for you to hate your brother. There are plenty of excuses to hate your brother. There are plenty of things that you can say to justify hating your brother because the reality is, is people, a lot of times, they do really bad things to each other. And I know a lot of people who try, um, who, 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 um, who have had things happen to them and they try to forgive and they're like, I just can't let this go. But forgiveness is always more about us than it is about the person that we're forgiving. Even here, what does John say? John says that it is you who stays in darkness if you have hatred for another person. And John says that even though it's you who's in darkness, it's a really big deal for more than just you because it will affect everybody around you. It's always about the entire community. It's always about the whole church. It's always about the whole family. I want you to see it. This last line says this. It says, in him, uh, there, uh, in, this, in a person who has love and who doesn't hate his brother, there is no cause for stumbling. Now, this is fascinating because what it says is that it is hate for another that causes other people to stumble. It says clearly, if you love other people and you love them for real, then there's not going to be any stumbling. This word stumbling is the word scandalon. And this is what it means. It means the stick in a trap. Now, I want you to think about the way that we do this to other people And just like Pastor Austin said, the way that we set ourselves up for disasters in our own lives, even by the traps we set for ourselves when we can't forgive ourselves and we can't, um, when we can't forgive others or we can't forgive ourselves and what this does. And I I know you might be like, hey, I've heard you talk about this stuff before. Hopefully it's gonna be a little different today. But one thing I I know for sure is I'm gonna take as much time as needed every, every week if we have to, to talk about how important it is to forgive one another. Remember, forgiveness is the word afeame, and it means to send away. What that means is that whatever someone did to you is not here anymore. That there's no space for whatever it is. There's no space for it in your life. There's no space for it in your home. There's no space for it in our church. It's wrong what they did. I'm I'm not downplaying what they did. It's wrong, but it's over. And it needs to be sent away so that we can continue being the loving Jesus community that we are called to be. And again, it may sound repetitive, it may sound redundant, 
But if you don't forgive other people, this is what happens. What happens is it's subtle. Usually, again, it's subtle and it starts small and it's done by people and they're not even realizing that they're doing them. But what it leads to in you is often something that Hebrews calls a root of bitterness. And it can be extremely contagious, which is why I think that he frames this in such a communal setting. See, if somebody hurts you, and you don't forgive that person, and you continue to come back to it, what's going to happen is that offense is going to become a normal part of your life. And if it becomes a normal part of your life, before long, it's going to become a normal part of your conversations. And so then what happens is you're going to say something about another person to another person, and you may not even realize what you're saying or how you're framing that person in a moment, But what you're actually doing is you're setting a trap for that person, the person you're talking to about another. You're setting, it's the stick in the trap that will lead that person to sin. Because what it's going to do is it's going to lead that person to recreate their view of another human being based on what you are telling them. You see, our words create worlds. They paint images for people. And if your words are the only picture that somebody gets of another person, you have the power to influence somebody's entire view of another person. So you can use your words for good, or you can use your words for bad. Let me give you an example. And this is an embarrassing example. I hate that this happened, and Pastor Austin's probably going to be really mad at me that I did this. I feel really bad about this. Um, You'll probably be like, I can't believe that a pastor would say that. Or maybe you're going to be like, that's not even a big deal at all. There's a lot of times when I say stuff, and then I immediately like, want to stick my foot in my mouth. I'm like, why did I say that? I did not mean that at all. And, um, and, but what I'll do a lot of times is I'll say something, the first thing that will pop in my head is, what kind of world is this creating? What's it going to create? Because I get that this happens. So this Thursday, we were at the Pastors Think Lab. We went to this awesome event with all these pastors, and it was so much fun. We took, we took a bunch of our team there, and, uh, and we were talking to this group of youth groups, and Drew runs up to this youth pastor. He's like, you've got to bring a team this summer. You've got to sign you up. Let's sign you up. And then another girl from a different church, not that church, comes up to me and says, we've been begging our youth pastor to go to four days. And he keeps saying no. And this is what I said. I was trying to laugh. I was kind of just being goofy. I was like, what a bum. That's what I said about this guy. And then but the second I said it, the second I said it, I stopped. And I, I said, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm serious. You might think, oh, what, why is it a big deal? But I'll, I'll show you why it is. I said, I'm so sorry. I did not mean that at all. I do not actually believe that at all about him. I, I, I just, I want him to, I just, you know, I would love for you guys to come. I, I want you guys to come. I didn't mean to say that. And most people do understand the difference between a joke and somebody who's actually like saying something out of bitter or out of angerness. And I'm not angry and I'm not bitter about them not coming. I don't actually, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't actually feel that way about them at all, right? But there are roots to comments like that and roots rear their ugly head. In, my, in this case, the roots had everything to do with me and nothing to do with that person whom I barely even know. But in this instance, it's everything to do with me. Just really, we want, I want our mission season to take off. Like, I want people to believe in what we're doing. I want people to come out and see it and, and buy into it and say, hey, I want to bring teams and I want to help with the construction projects and I want to help plant the gardens and, and, and visit the schools and do the assemblies and I want to help make Detroit a better place and I want people to buy into what we're doing. And so I'm disappointed that they didn't come. But sometimes what we do is we let disappointment guide us. So it's easy to, in the traps of our minds, and this is what I have let happen, to start to think that those people just aren't for us because they're not coming. Or those people don't believe in us or they, they aren't with us. But that's not true at all. 
And it's not my job to determine what's best for their students. But here's what my words have the potential to do. First of all, it, in my own mind, it kind of put me down this thing. Well, are they just not for us? Do they just not believe in us? Do they just not want to be a part of what we're doing? But this is what I said that could have an effect. If, if it shouldn't, I hope it didn't. That's why I was very quick to apologize for it. But, but what if that person that heard it, to a degree, kind of agreed with me? Like, they've already said they're frustrated with their youth pastor because he, they want to come and he doesn't want them to go, right? And then they hear a pastor say, my pastor's the bum. <laughs> like, I don't think that. And even though I meant nothing by it, if they took it literally, what is that actually saying? That's saying, my pastor isn't willing to do the work. My pastor's not willing to do the grind. He's not willing to come. He's not willing to be a part of something that needs to get done. And what that has the potential to do is to very subtly, very slowly start tearing down in that person trust for the person that God entrusted them with. Like, and if she, she could lose her trust in the leader that God entrusted over her to do. See, words, they do matter. They pave paths. They create worlds. Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the mouth is a reflection of something going on inside of you. And you have to be able to control it. Proverbs 29, 11 says that only a fool speaks whatever comes to his mind. Whereas a wise man quietly holds back. I love the ESV and the way that the ESV puts it. It says a fool gives full vent to his spirit. I think that's something we all need to remember. The things that we say, the way that we react to people, the way that we vent, it all creates worlds. And what John says is it sets traps. You're setting traps for people. When you, when you, when you do that, it sets people up to sin. Your words can cause people to hold grudges. It can cause people to pick up your offense. And just a sidebar, if you're ever on the receiving end of a conversation like that, don't ever pick up somebody else's offense. Don't ever do that. Walk them through it, but don't feed it, and definitely don't eat of it. Don't take it in and don't buy into what, whatever it is. We, we know, I know we need to sometimes counsel people and walk through things with people, but we can't just feed it, and we can't just let our lives kind of get consumed by it. And see, this is why I think it's so important that you don't hate your neighbor and that you don't hate your brother. And this is why it's so important that we forgive every single time. Because whatever doesn't get sent away, it's eventually going to come out. And if it comes out to somebody else, then what happens? You tell somebody, oh, so-and-so did this. So-and-so slept with somebody. So-and-so used me. So-and-so did this and it screwed us up. Be careful of this person. Be careful of them, right? Then the moment that they finally meet so-and-so... What's the first thing they're going to think of them, right? The first, what, the first thing they're going to think of them when they meet them, they say, well, this person's a thief, or this person's a cheater, this person lies about people, this person's fake, this person's going to let you down. Whatever it is, it's the first thing they're going to think of. All critical, sinful thoughts toward forgiven children of God that God loves with all of his heart. I, I love what this proverb says. Proverbs 17.9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. You want love to be prominent in your community, we cover offenses. But who repeats a matter separates close friends. You're setting traps for people when you talk to them about others who you're holding something against. And if you're, if you're the hearer in those moments, you're going to have to actually work to create a different image than the one that was painted by somebody else. So now suddenly people are like on proving ground with you. 
Like, and they don't even know it. But do you, do you understand how that's a problem? We should look at people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we should realize we're looking at a reflection of ourselves. It's a broken person. But it's a person who has an advocate. A person who has a redeemer. And because John understands that, and because John obviously understands the power of words... And what he does is he goes the other way with it. And he uses his words to build up the church and to affirm them and to remind them of all the things that they already are. And it's actually one of the most powerful things in the entire Bible. He says, I'm not writing you guys because you're bad. I'm writing you because you're forgiven. I'm writing you because you know God. I'm not writing you because of all the times that you fell. I'm writing you because when you fall, you have an advocate. I'm not writing you because you're weak. I'm writing you because you're strong. Because you've overcome the evil one. I absolutely love the kind of the arc of this chapter. Which is, you probably like these last three sermons, or these last two sermons, you're probably like, this is kind of, it's like a roller coaster, kind of what he's saying, but that's what he does with it. He, he, he starts by saying in verse 1 and 2, he talks about Jesus, and he says, please don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. It's the most important thing to remember. Jesus will plead your cause. He's, he's like, I know you're guilty, but I've already taken care of the punishment. That's what that means. Then John goes on to say, if God's love is truly in us, then we're going to keep the commandments. And Jesus sums up all the commandments with love. Love God, love your neighbor. Then John continues on that path, saying why we must not love, or why we must not hate our brother, and how it's impossible to love God and hate your brother. You can say it, but it's impossible to actually do it. He says it actually blinds you. It means you're walking in darkness. That's why you can say you love, like some people say, I love God, but they actually are in darkness. When you're blinded, you don't, you don't know, you can't see what is wrong. It's a darkness that there's no path out of besides forgiveness. But then John shifts it. And sort of in this poetic piece, he declares who we are. And this is where we need to park today. And this is where we need to rest today. And this is where we need to just glean from today. It, 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 he declares who you are in Christ. And in a moment, we're going to close the sermon by reading that end part again. But before we read it, I want you to know why I think this last section is so incredibly important. And why I believe that it should change you. And why if you let it, it will. See, I know that there are people in this place who've been having a very hard time forgiving others. I know that I personally have had a hard time forgiving others. And honestly, guys, the only way that you're ever going to be able to do it, the only way you're going to ever be able to truly move on, the only way you're going to ever be able to send away that offense that you're holding on to against someone is if you take it to the cross. If you look to God who hung on that tree so that you could be forgiven. Jesus tells a parable, we're, very, we're all familiar with this parable, of, of a man who was forgiven a great debt, an absolutely enormous debt. And then he immediately goes and he finds somebody who owed him just a little bit of money and he has him thrown in prison for not being able to pay. And the idea of that seems totally absurd until you actually find yourself struggling to forgive another person. Because it's hard. It's very, very hard. And the point of that parable is that no matter how awful it may be, what somebody may have done to you, 
We don't want to diminish it. The depth of pain that they may have caused you, the things that they have, may have stolen from you or taken from you or taken from your family, as big as it is, it is a small debt in comparison to what we did to Jesus. But what did he do with our sins? He sent them away. He forgave them. He died for them. Nothing else will ever help you forgive another person, especially if the pain is that real. Besides that, I also know that there are people in here who have been having a very hard time forgiving themselves, accepting forgiveness themselves, understanding who they are and how loved they are and how much they're worth to Jesus, actually accepting the cross and accepting what Christ did for you. The truth is, guys, the fact that you are forgiven is literally the truest thing about you. It's the truest thing about you in your entire life. The fact that Jesus loves you and paid for your sins so that you don't have to live in them anymore, that is the truest thing about you. We talked about truth last week and about how there is truth, and I'm telling you more than anything else in the entire world, the truth is this, that you have sinned, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, but that you have an advocate who will stand in your place. Someone who knows your guilt, yet already took care of it. That's the truth. It's absolute truth, and it absolutely applies to each and every one of you in this place today. But sometimes, even though things are true, they don't always feel real. They don't always feel like stuff that we can actually tangibly grasp in our lives. It's hard to realize how much God loves us. It's hard to remember that we're part of a community of people who loves us. I read this article yesterday. Um, it just popped up on my, I get the little news things. I don't even know why, I don't even know how to stop it from coming in. I get these little news pop-ups on my phone. And I, I read this article. It's about a man and his brother, and they lived far from their father. And they knew their dad didn't have much time to live. And what they wanted more than anything from this man was a final blessing. Like, I just want a final blessing from my dad. Now, don't get me wrong. This father had spent his entire life blessing them affirming them. He wasn't like one of those deadbeat dads and like, man, dad, if you would just tell me one time that you love me, then that's all I need because I've never heard it my whole life. No, they heard it their whole lives. They knew it their whole lives. He lived it out for them their whole lives. So it didn't seem like too much for them to ask of him to give him a final blessing. And they're far away, so they get on a three-way phone call with their dad. And they know this might be the last time we ever talk to him and they ask him for a blessing. But instead, he just keeps insisting that he's going to live until he's 100 years old. And they're just like, Dad, please bless us. He's like, guys, I'm going to live till 100. I'm, I'm, you're good. You guys are going to be good. So he didn't give them what they were looking for. They ended the call. But at the end of the call, he did say these last words. These are the last four words they said on the call, and they were the last four words that they would ever hear him say. He ended the call by saying this to his sons. He says, you are my beautiful soldiers. Hardly the blessing that they had requested. But it was encouraging nonetheless. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And then the dad passed away. And then this is what the article said after that, and I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read a couple of sections out of it for you. It says this. This is after the funeral. What we didn't realize was that dad wasn't finished. He had one more affirmation left. Two days after dad died, 
my aunt gave us a notebook that belonged to him. And what we found inside it took our breath away. Dad had written seven pages of individual blessings for my brother and me, our wives, and his seven grandchildren. Affirmation after affirmation filled the pages until at the end he pronounced this final blessing over all of us. Above all, I praise and thank a loving God who hasn't and never will forget about me or you. You will never lose your significance to the Lord. Woven into that message was the thing that we all needed to hear from Dad one more time. You will never lose your significance to me. I knew that. Of course I knew that. But I never stopped needing to hear it. The article went on to encourage the readers, and the, and the man said this to us, to all those reading. He said, Our loved ones don't necessarily assume that we love them deeply. And even if they do, it means everything just to hear it. It doesn't take seven pages or eloquent words to make the point either. I love you. You matter to me. I'm so glad you're in my life. Imagine what it would mean for you to hear those words from your father, your mother, spouse, child, or a friend. Imagine what it might mean if you gave those words as a gift to someone else. If you're struggling with bitterness in this place this morning, give yourself to affirmation. Give yourself to finding something beautiful in somebody else because it's there. And your words could create a whole new world of hope for them and for you. A world that's not defined by the things that somebody else did to you, but by what Jesus did for you. Grace is the greatest gift that you've ever received, and it is the absolute greatest gift that you could give to another person. If you're struggling with acceptance this morning, let the words that we're about to read from the Apostle John reaffirm and remind you just where you stand with Jesus. Because a lot of times you're like, well, where do I stand? I don't know where I stand. John tells us where we stand, and Jesus does too. You can live your whole life, and something could be true the whole time. And you know that it's true, but you still need to hear it sometimes. You still need to be reminded. That father spent his entire life blessing his children. Yet the thing they needed the most at the end was another blessing. The truth was always there. It was always there. They just, they needed it to take shape one more time. And for a moment, they were disappointed because they thought that they weren't going to get it. But whether they would have got that last journal or not, it never would have changed the Father's feelings towards them. It never would have changed the fact that they're so loved. And a lot of us, we live that way with God. Even though we don't know how much He loves us sometimes, like we don't even realize that we do know, but... It's the truest thing that ever existed, and yet we act like we don't know it. We forget about it. We let ourselves forget. And sometimes it just doesn't feel real. And it's not that it's not real. It's that the circumstances of our lives take control of our emotions, and we forget who we are in Christ. Because in the same way that we have an advocate, we also have an adversary. We have a devil who's, who works night and day to remind us that the things that Jesus died for us for like that we, he tries to tell us we still have to pay for that. We still have to die for that. But that's a lie. And there's an enormous journal written to remind you every single day just how much you are worth to Jesus. And in it, 
Do you remember what John said at the very beginning? The passage we're going to read in just a minute. He says, you're strong. Literally, you are one who has the strength of soul to sustain those attacks of Satan. He's saying, you can do it. I know life is hard, but you can do it. I know the devil's coming at you with a lot of stuff and it's messing with your mind. You can do it. You're bigger than it. You're better than it. And you can do it. And your community can help. And I I know life just hits hard sometimes. And days, they don't always go the way that we want them to go. And a lot of times at the end, we find ourselves at the end of this day just feeling like, man, this could have gone better. Or I could have done better. And if there's one thing that we can learn from the way that John ends this section in this kind of poetic affirmation, it's that we all need those reminders sometimes. We all need reminders sometimes of just who it is that we are. Because we're not lost people. We're redeemed people. We're not orphans. We're sons and daughters of the living God. And it was on our worst day that Jesus Christ died for us. On a cross so that he could send away our sins and never bring them back up again. Jesus sent them away. So why are we still grasping onto them? Let's read this last passage together. This is 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Your sins are sent away for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. You have the strength to overcome Satan. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That, my friends, is the world that Jesus died to create for you. You can do it. You're strong enough. You have what it takes.